Thank you for joining us for the Sunrise Message of the Week podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Sunrise Christian Center and our sponsors, the Send Network and Seattle Bible College. For more information, check out isunrise.org. Please help us get the word out by subscribing, downloading, rating, and commenting on our podcast. The more you interact with our content, the more people will hear it. Pastor John continues our series, The Kingdom Heart of a Disciple, a study on the Sermon on the Mount with a message entitled Salt and Light. So we're in this series called The Kingdom Heart of a Disciple. And last Sunday, uh, my dad preached a great message I heard. You guys had a good time. Some people put their faith and trust in Christ as he preached on the final part of the Beatitudes about peacemakers and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And uh, that was such a powerful introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for several months. And we just kind of capped the very first part. And so I got to preach at the Pursuit Northwest with Pastor Russell Johnson last Sunday, and who is my wife's cousin, and she got to give him a hard time and pray for me and with me and minister together, and that was just wonderful. Uh, and God, and some people came to faith in Christ, and God just really showed up in a powerful way. And so, thank you for your prayers. It's good to be back. I'm a little fired up. I'm going to try to stick to preaching and teaching and not meddling too much today. But sometimes you just can't help yourself. And so, uh, as we get into this next part of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to talk to you about salt and light. Salt and light. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus wraps up the Beatitudes, he transitions now to the type of influence that the church demonstrates in the world around her. And in Matthew 5.13, Jesus said this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Heaven. Amen. I remember being, uh, getting a new job to work at a restaurant, and I decided I didn't really like the job, so I didn't actually stick with it very long, but I started to go through the training before I said, I'm going to go back to my other job that I could still have if I wanted. And I went through some of the training, and the guy that was training me at this restaurant, I was probably like 19, 20 years old, and I hadn't really fully surrendered my life wholeheartedly to Christ, and I saw a lot of compromise to pornography and different things that I've shared my testimony before and how I was in uh, hypocrisy and bondage in my life. And I, you know, I wasn't really sure about how much I wanted to live for Christ, but for whatever amount I did, it was like two hours of training, and this guy's finally like, are you a Christian or something? And I'm like, how do you know? <laughs> I'm trying to hide my light. And I wasn't very effective, apparently, even in my state of compromise. So it was kind of a convicting moment because I'm like kind of embarrassed. Like I'm not even trying to be a light. I'm like kind of ashamed of my faith. And yet he asked me these different questions and he said, well, you didn't respond to my questions this way and you haven't talked like this and you apparently don't do that. And I just kind of started to deduce like I think this guy must be a Christian. And I was like, wow. 
So sometimes even when we're not trying, <laughs> we can be a light. And thank, thank God that Jesus got a hold of me. And I want to shine my light. I get to shine my light. It's a privilege to be a follower of Christ. But what does it mean for us to be salt and light? Uh, e. Stanley Jones in The Christ of the Mount said this, The sheer daring of telling a group of ex-fishermen on a hillside in a remote corner of the world that they were to become the one hope of the world. That they would save it from moral putrefaction, from moral darkness. It is breathtaking. These statements about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world are cosmic or comic. There's a huge connection here as we look through the Sermon on the Mount as to why Jesus laid this great teaching out for us in the way that he did. There's a reason he doesn't start with, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. He starts with the Beatitudes. He starts with the character of Christ, the kingdom heart of a disciple. And what, what is on the inside of us? See, we often want to have outward influence, but God is mostly concerned with inward change. He doesn't want to grant us outward influence without in, inward transformation, right? And so there's a huge connection between being poor in spirit, comforting those who mourn, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, being, uh, you know, being persecuted for righteousness sake, hunger and thirsting after righteousness. These qualities are essential. If we think that church can make a change outwardly without Christ reigning in our hearts through these character attributes, we are only fooling ourselves. So you may notice that something big is happening coming up this week on November 3rd. It's called the election, right? The national election for the president of the United States of America. Unless you have disregarded social media or the news altogether, you, you probably are well aware of that fact. And I believe that what I'm teaching this week and even next Sunday when my dad teaches about Jesus's view of the law and the prophets um, in, this, in this great Sermon on the Mount, um, we start to get into the politics of Jesus. And some of these implications that we're going to talk about have political implications. Now, a lot of people think that, well, gee, what Jesus said isn't really relevant to politics, but that's really not true. It's actually not that complicated to figure out how Jesus cares about different issues that are political issues. And a lot of Christians even will be like, hands off, we can't talk about that. That's a separation of church and state. That's a political issue. Well, politics has a lot to do with moral issues and the Bible's full of moral issues. Of course, it's more than a book of morality. It's a book about the king and his kingdom, right? And about the ways of God that are transcendent over the affairs of man. But they have implication for the affairs of men and women and for all of us that walk this earth. And so I don't want to end with this practical application on government. I want to start with it so I can end on some other stuff. All right? Um, so I'm going to start with one of the narrow applications of our cultural moment. And then a little bit later, I'll zoom out and look at the big picture of what Jesus is talking about with salt and light. And I just recently heard a lecture. I was on a Zoom call earlier this week and then heard a lecture that was delivered by this man named Fred Market. And Fred Market is a YWAM missionary. He's a youth with a mission missionary that's a global relations expert. And he also did two-part lecture on YouTube um, to Christ for the Nations Institute. And I got to watch those this week as well because what he shared was very intriguing to me how it intersects with our current events, the election, global events, and politics. 
And as a, Fred Market is a historian, a futurist, and like I said, a global relations expert. And he went through an illness earlier in his life to which very few people recover. And he seems to have recovered fairly well from it. But he went through a period where he couldn't even walk. He had to drag himself across the floor and he was locked up in a house and all he could do is read pretty much. So he read like 300 and some books in like three or six months, some time period like that on global relations, world history, the rise and fall of empires and now has sat before leading Ivy League, Yale, Harvard type schools, PhDs that are futurists and global relations or international relations experts. And they've even asked, and one of these schools is offering him a PhD if he'll just write a dissertation. And they say, where did you get your PhD from? And he says, I am just self-taught and I spent time in prayer. And these are the things that God showed me from my study. But he learned the language of, of the academics. He learned the language of elites so that he could speak to people that were educated in a language that they would understand. And they're telling him that you understand global events better than anybody that we've talked to. And so you might not agree with what he has to say. You might not agree with my take on what he has to say. And that's fine. You don't have to agree with me on that, but I think it's worth considering what he's sharing. And so he's talking about the election that's coming up and the future of America. And he's noticed something in his study of world history. And that's that as he overlays these graphs on top of one another from his research, is that every time there's a unipolar power or there's one superpower in the world, one empire in the world at a time, the gospel spreads the fastest and the furthest under one empire at a time. So if you look at that history, when the Roman empire was raised up, the gospel spread incredibly at that time. But as soon as the Roman Empire fell, the gospel started to go into decline into other nations of the earth. And when the Mongol Empire was raised up after it, uh, generations later, the gospel again spread in advance far and wide across the earth under the Mongol Empire. And then it collapsed and the gospel declined. Then the British Empire was raised up and the gospel advances under the British Empire and it spread the influence wanes after the empire collapses. Then the United States, the empire, uh, the superpower of the United States is raised up and the gospel is it's spreading across the earth at an incredible pace as the U.S. has come to power. And what he noticed in his studies is that each empire has is a superpower or a unipower for about 238 years, give or take. The U.S. has had its power for 240 some years. And every time in world history, when a superpower loses its power and the world becomes a unipower or another power takes its place, that superpower loses its power overnight. So the process of decline to get there is very gradual over hundreds of years, but the event, one day they're a superpower, the next day they're not. And every time the gospel is affected, now he's a, he's a missionary and he cares about the spread of the gospel throughout the earth. And that is my that is my biggest concern for the church. That's my biggest concern for voting. As I look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, who will allow us to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness because God is not willing that any would perish, but all would come to the knowledge of the truth. We're instructed to pray for leaders and those in authority over us because God wants the gospel to advance. So I think if that's how the Bible tells us that's what we're to pray for for our leaders is gospel advancement, a peaceable life for the church, for the gospel to advance right, then that's how I vote, is I vote for a peaceable atmosphere for the church to be able to do what the church is called to do because I believe the biggest change in the world doesn't come through a president or a political party or a platform. It comes through the church of Jesus Christ. So anyhow, so Fred Market is sharing this research and what he said is he believes from his research in global 
uh, foreign relation policies um, that if Donald Trump wins the election, that we have about p potentially a nine-year window before the U.S. loses its superpower status. And he believes that if Biden wins, we have about a four- or five-year period before the U.S. collapses as a superpower. That's his study and estimate based on their policy. He's an optimist. He's a realist. He said, I believe in revival, and I believe that we have a window of time to turn this thing around. But he said, in the next three to four years, no matter who wins the election, the church of Jesus Christ has to start to reach people with the gospel and make disciples in business, in economics, in law, to touch family policy. And he said, what happens in, in a superpower, he says, he's researched, is that when a, a nation goes to, and I, 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 I forgot a couple of the points in the first service, and I don't remember if I can remember all of them, but you can definitely check his lecture out. But when a, when a, a superpower goes on endless wars and that they don't necessarily need to get involved in, that that's a sign that they're about to lose their power. And he said the Iraq war was that war that was not necessarily a, a needed or a, a, a war. He said the other things that happen is that the government spends too much, that the nation spends too much on its own comforts and ease in social programs and spending. The next thing that happens, and this is according to the research that he quotes from Camille Peglia, who's a feminist lesbian, by the way, she studied 5,000 years of human history and she said what causes the nation to collapse an imminent collapse is when a culture fully embraces transgenderism. In 5,000 years of human history, that is the thing that causes it to unravel. She, as a lesbian feminist, says that we need to reinstitute teaching religion in schools because we have to have a moral fabric return to our nation. Some preachers won't even say that, but apparently a, a lesbian feminist will tell you that. <laughs> right, so, uh, so we find ourselves in this interesting climate where there are huge implications of how we vote and how we engage in government. And so I'm telling you to prayerfully consider how you vote. There are many things at stake, but one of the challenges we face when we tell people to vote biblically is that we are very reductionistic and we've reduced, and I've shared about this a little bit earlier in the last series that we've done, um, you can go see the YouTube videos if you'd like to. But we've, we've told people that, like, it's very important that you vote by biblical values, but we haven't remembered, if we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us that it's more important that we live biblical values than that we impose values on others. Now, every, some people say, well, we shouldn't look for a government to legislate morality. Well, that's false because every law is, a mor is, mor is moral yeah. or immoral. <laughs> So the, thou shall not murder is imposing your morality on somebody else. <laughs> what, we should, what we should say is that we don't believe people's hearts can change just simply because a law is passed or enacted, but that doesn't mean we don't want to pass good laws. But what Jesus teaches, and I'm getting ahead of myself in, in future sermons coming up, but what Jesus says is he, he, gives a, he warns us about trying to change the world outside of you while ignoring what the biggest issue should be is how you change yourself. And he does this more than once. So we've said, go vote. But when, you're, when you vote, which we should do, I'm not, I, it's so important that we vote. There's huge implications for what happens. But what happens is when we say vote is we think once we voted that we've made this moral statement and then we peace out and we abdicate our responsibilities that God has given us. So it's one thing to vote pro-life, but if you have a pornography habit, did you know that you're typically funding abortion through your pornography habit, whether you buy it or you click on the ads for it online? So what point is it in voting against it 
if you're not going to live a life that, that aligns with it. Right? I saw one pastor who has a lot of people in his church in a big city. He's not necessarily very uh, right or left. He's pretty centrist, and he's very biblically uh, conservative and biblical values. He believes in, in moral absolutes very strongly and preaches righteousness. But he said, you know, a lot of the people in his church are anti-Trump, and he's like, he tells some of these young people, like, you're so mad at his immorality, but you look at porn and masturbate. So quit throwing stones at somebody else's morality and not dealing with the immorality in your own heart. And so this is what I'm trying to get at today is that it's very important no matter who wins how we operate as a church. And if we don't be, live the identity of salt and light, we're going to suffer as a result. There, and then uh, my mentor will be with us a little while in a little while, Bishop Joseph Matera, and I'm so excited for him to be out here. Just keep praying. I mean, it's been a weird season for travel. I really want him to be here, uh, you know, with us, um, Lord willing. And uh, he wrote just recently on two, a part of it, two articles about the seven perspectives on political engagement. And I think it's very, very helpful for us to look at these. Number one is nationalism. Seven perspectives. These are uh, ways that we, different churches and Christians, look at political influence. Nationalism is sometimes now contrasted to globalism. In the last couple of years, I've noticed this distinctive, but more traditionally, nationalism is idolatrous because people put their identity of their nationality above their kingdom citizenship and their biblical identity that God gives them in the scriptures. And you see that like in the German church uh, during Hitler's rise to power is that when the church was a national Lutheran church, they, 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 they conflated, the, they blurred the lines of what's church and what's state and they really uh, were, were too synchronized and too, uh, they, they, they believed that, you know, their victory, their domination uh, was a sign of God's blessing and favor. And so Christians should reject nationalism um, where it is elevating them above other peoples as superior. Now, I know I said that when there is a superpower in the world, it causes the gospel to spread, but that's not about that nation. That's not about that, a certain president or a certain person or party. That's about the sake of the gospel. That's just a reality of looking at anthropology and looking at human history of what happens uh, to allow something, but that doesn't mean that we should act like we are the light of the world as Americans or that President Trump is the light of the world, or that if Biden is elected, he'll be the light of the world. You know, th th that is a confusion of, the, of, of uh, not American separation of church and state, but that is a confusion in the church of seeing ourselves as Americans, as the superior ones that do God's work in the earth. And that's a form of idolatry that we must reject. And this is how totalitarian regimes rise up to do things that are horrible to other nations because they believe that they're the leaders or they're in charge so they can do whatever they want and there's no checks or balances um, that would cause them to walk in the ways of the Lord because they confuse everything. They think everything they do is a sign that God loves them and approves of what they're doing. Number two, patriotism. It's distinguished from nationalism, but patriotism is actually a good thing. Peter uh, said in his epistle, he said, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So to honor and love the nation that you're in is actually a wonderful thing. And, to, and when you're a patriotic, that doesn't mean that you love all the things about your nation or that you agree with all the decisions that are made or that you agree with all the wars or all the laws or that you're always, it just means that you love being a part of the people that God has allowed you to be part of. 
and to celebrate those redemptive, beautiful parts of your culture that are in line with the word of God, it's wonderful to be patriotic, but I believe that still falls short of the full picture of what God would have us to be as the church. And we'll get to that one in a little bit. Number three, an apolitical subculture. This is where people are like, uh, some of the old Mennonites or Amish or the Quakers, they believed in a withdrawal principle. Get out of the big bad world. It's evil and scary and we're going to set up our own little club and we're just going to be holy and different and separate and the only time we engage in the political process is maybe if they're going to take our freedoms away, we'll vote. But otherwise, we just kind of let the world be the world. Just leave us in our own bubble. We'll leave you alone. You leave us alone. And we escape the responsibility we have in Acts 1-8 to be witnesses into all the earth. Number four, dominionism. This is held by uh, a lot of Pentecostals in some ways, um, theonomists, reconstructionists uh, that believe in the cultural mandate. Genesis 1-28, uh, God told Adam and Eve, have dominion over all the earth, be fruitful and multiply. Now when God gave mankind dominion over the whole earth, he never gave us dominion over other people. And this is the problem with those who, who have a fully developed dominionism is they believe that we're supposed to take over governments, laws, and, and areas of culture and basically force Christianity on the rest of the world. Now, the one thing about uh, dominionists and post-millennialists, that tends to be their eschatology viewpoint, is that they believe that the, the millennium uh, is basically going to, the, the thousand year reign of Christ is going to be ushered in through the church, ruling the world, and then Jesus will come back. The good thing they have and that they believe is that you can look at the law of God and you can solve issues in your current culture and we can bring transformation to laws and nations and to issues of poverty and economics and crime and we can actually cause the world to be revived and to become more Christ-like. So they have some really good qualities to a point but they also live with a lot of guilt because they believe that they should be able to come to a place where their ideology prevails so much that basically everybody's saved and all the governments fully are in line with the ways of God. Now there's been a couple of glimpses of like a city in the Bible or a people coming under the, we serve the one true God for a short window of time. And we want those kind of revivals and awakenings, but to think that we come to a place where we actually Christianize the systems of the world before Jesus comes back and overthrows death, I believe is a fallacy and overreaches theologically what's possible until the return of Christ. Number five, the socialistic framework where the church thinks, you know what, the government is here to take care of the poor and everybody else and so we kind of just allow the government to treat us like serfs and the nanny state uh, knows what's best for you. Big brother knows what's best for you. And we will just kind of, as the church, we'll kind of peace out. I mean, the government takes care of the poor, so we don't really have to. And what can happen is we ignore our imp the important role that God has given the church to care for the poor and take care of social needs as a community. And it springs more out of Marxist ideologies. It's been an utter failure in the Soviet Union, Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, and has even led to the deaths of over 100 million people throughout world history because of it. there's a radical side to the ideology that is not always instituted, but it has been many times to great failure and devastation. And what happens is that there's a biblical jurisdictions that God has given us. And these are the jurisdictions of uh, personal government and responsibility over our own life, family government, 
voluntary associations in business and commerce, civic government is one of those five. And the last one would be the religious or church sphere of government or authority that God has instituted in the earth. And when we give surrender as Christians to a socialistic framework, the civil starts to override individual and family and church areas uh, that God has ordained to be separate uh, jurisdictions that interrelate with one another and should work together but should not be controlled completely by civic government. Number six, symbiotic. This is where the basically the church just bows down and says, hey, you know, us and the government are one. You can see in some of the cultural and church issues in the Church of England right now on moral issues, they're basically when there's a national church, sometimes the church just quits being a prophetic voice, quits saying there's separation on moral issues between the culture and the church, and we start changing our Christianity based on what the state is doing and what the culture is doing. And so there's a, there's a blending where we're just kind of like, hey, we're all in this together. Let's just try to work together, right? And uh, and what happens is a delusion of our distinctives and our values. We lose our prophetic witness to speak truth to power and say this is the way of the Lord. And then number seven, salt and light. This is what we're talking about today. This is the biblical framework that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be in the work within the government systems, but not to be of them. We're not to withdraw or abandon government systems, but we're to influence as salt and light. We're to be a, we're to be a place of influence. And so I would say this, church, if you vote Republican, when you're with other Republicans, you're not with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're in a mission field. You're in a place that still needs to be reformed to embrace all the values of the kingdom of God. If you vote Democrat and you're with Democrats, you're on a mission field. You're not with your brothers and sisters. Just because they might want to take care of the poor with you doesn't mean that you're with necessarily with brothers and sisters in Christ. You're in a political system that falls short of embracing the full values of God's law and God's ways and God's kingdom. And so we have to be in the world, but not of the world. We have to learn how to engage and participate. And there's some things we must abstain from that are outright evil. But what happens when we, when we don't realize this is we think that just because we vote, things are done. I've heard it said a lot, vote for President Trump because he's the most pro-life president ever. In 2000, this is what I'm trying to get us to see, no matter who wins the election, okay? In 2019, Planned Parenthood had one of the biggest amount of donations they've ever had, supposedly under, or, or government funding, not donations, government funding. Look at it. I know you might want to throw things at me and you think I'm not saying something true, but look at the facts. We have to go beyond rhetoric. It's easy to say, well, I voted pro-life, so therefore I'm not responsible for anything that happens. No, you got to hold the Republican Party responsible if you vote for them and make sure that they change the policies to line up with what you voted for. That's why I'm trying to say, don't just vote. Pray, obey, influence, engage. And if you're a Democrat, then you got to get your party to quit putting down any pro-life Democrat candidates. There was one candidate that wasn't even allowed to run for the Democrat party anymore because he was pro-life. Right? So what I'm saying is, if we just think it's about voting, we are not actually being salt and light. We're giving it up to the government to make the change. And I will weep and celebrate and dance the day that Roe v. Wade is overturned in this nation. I believe for that day. But even when that happens, I believe that we got to care for 
poor single moms. And we got to have adoption and foster. And we got to take care of people. And we can do that now. Right? And so uh, to, take, to remedy those issues that, that bring God's judgment, the thing is, is that God cares about the poor. He cares about how we treat immigrants. He cares about pro-life. It breaks his heart to see the confusion we've ushered in about sexual identity and transgenderism, gay marriage. These are all things that God talks to us about in his law. And no party handles all of these issues well, according to the word of God. So when we look at the politics of Jesus, we realize we're going to be challenged, no matter how we vote, to really think holistically in a biblical way. Read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's pretty clear what God thinks about things. We're going to see it more. That Jesus said, I didn't abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. We're going to see a couple weeks after that about how Jesus elevates the standard of righteousness. People are like, well, Jesus isn't clear about his view on sexuality. He's very clear on his view of sexuality. It actually starts with this message on salt and light and is really deep. And next week with my dad's message on Matthew 5. And then I'll take it even deeper. And we talk about murder and we talk about sexual immorality. It's, it's pretty, pretty simple to figure out the politics of Jesus on sexuality and morality. So we as Christ followers, we got to be salt and light. And part of that is voting. Part of that's being a part of the system. So I hope you're hearing me. I'm not saying don't vote, it doesn't matter. I'm saying what matters beyond voting is our life and our obedience and our influence and our advocacy and our, our talking to our political leaders and us actually just helping in our local communities and doing what Jesus has called us to do irregardless of what the government does. So we got to be salt and light. So let's talk about that. Let's zoom out real quick and look at the big picture now of salt and light. Salt. What is salt? Well, it gives us flavor, right? You ever have bland food that just needs some salt? My wife's grandma, she is with the Lord now, but she just, she puts so much salt on everything. It's like she, she put salt in the recipe and then she'd salt it before she even tried it. And then she'd try it and put more salt on it. And it was like, man, it's just like salt, salt, salt. But salt gives food more flavor, right? And, and so we are the salt of the earth, but salt also was a preserving age. And they didn't have refrigeration in the Bible times. So salt was a preserver. It would keep food preserved so it didn't rot. It was a preserving agent. And what salt speaks of when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, by the way, I, I don't want you to say, see this. I want you to see that he's saying, you are the salt of the earth, not that you should be the salt of the earth. This is a statement of identity. This is a statement of influence and power. It's not like, hey, you should become the salt of the earth. You should try to be the salt of the earth. You should arrive at a place where you get to be there and do those kind of things. But no, this is who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You're saying we are a preserving agent. We add flavor and we preserve. We stop the putrefaction. We stop the rottenness. And he gives a warning. He said, if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It's, if, it, if the salt rots, if the salt loses its ability to preserve, then there's nothing else left for it to do. And if that's the case, then we are good for nothing. The New International Bible Commentary on Matthew says, Believers who fail to arrest corruption become worthless as agents of change and redemption. 
Christianity may make its peace with the world and avoid persecution, but it is thereby rendered impotent to fulfill its divinely ordained role. It will thus ultimately be rejected even by those with whom it has sought compromise. When the world tries to, when the church tries to soften its message, hey, let's soften the blow. Let's just, the world, I've heard preachers say, the world already knows what the church thinks about homosexuality. Let's just be quiet about that issue for a couple of years. Let's just soften our approach. Let's just introduce people to Jesus and not talk about moral issues because then Jesus will change their heart on moral issues. That didn't work very well for American slavery. We'll just give them Jesus. And then Jesus will change their heart on all these moral issues. No, Jesus is not a magic pill or a magic button that if you just attach him to your life, that it means that he's going to transform everything. He is transforming. He has the power to do everything. But where to use the word of God is our mirror. The word of God is our standard to test us and cause us to examine if Jesus has all of us or not. And when you start reading, not like throwing your finger in the book by fanning it and going, I need to read today. I need to read. You start reading book by book, verse by verse through the scripture. And you're going to get confronted about something you believe. I've been confronted about my politics. I've been confronted about my attitude. I've been confronted about how I treat my wife and kids. I've been confronted by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount every single time I read this. Right? And so we can't soften our saltiness. Now, some of you got that salty spouse. Maybe you're that salty kid or that person. They're a little salty, aren't they? You know, but you know what? Like, we're to be salty. We're to not lose our distinctiveness. It's so important. Uh, we're going to get this later in the First Principles series. And I love this kind of corporate view of the First Principles series and how it gets us into a, out of an individual mindset. The first book we're going through is a lot more individual. But once we start going through the rest of this series, it's going to start renewing our minds. And I'm excited for us to get into that stuff about how to really think biblically about what it means to be the church. But Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. I remember the first time I saw that, it was in a class for my master's degree. And I'm like, how many times have I read Timothy? And I never remember God saying that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. Some of us would think that's blasphemous. Jesus is the truth. What do you mean the church? The church is full of problems. The church is full of people. The pillar and ground of truth. Pastor Herb even put out some prayer points that we shared this weekend. You should have got an email if you're on our email list in your inbox. We did a little video this week about three prayer targets to start November 3rd. And the third one has to do with the church's posture in this hour. And he said the church is only truly true or something like that at the very first sentence of that prayer target. And people, I thought people might see this and get a little upset. Like, what is he talking about? The church thinks there. That's what, that's what God says. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. The church is the salt of the earth. What does this mean? As the church goes, so goes the nation. As the church goes, so goes the nations of the earth. I believe as the pulpits go, so goes the church. So you got to pray for your pastor. That's why I love pastors, trying to support them. Times are heavy. Times are difficult. We can't compromise in this hour. We cannot compromise. The very people we say that we're loving to try to reach by softening the blow is actually the people that will end up rejecting our message. I mean, it's been the liberalist churches in every generation that lose the most amount of people. So what they do is they try to get more people in their church by softening the message. And then within a generation or so, their, their buildings are usually empty. If you tell the world that basically everything you're doing is cool with God, then they're like, peace out. Why do I need to come to church? <laughs> Why do I need you? If I don't need to change, 
If I don't need to go a new way, why, you know, why would I even listen to anything you have to say? I'm already good. But we lose hopelessness. There's been a huge movement of trying to help the homosexual community uh, have a lower suicide rate. And I think that's actually important as Christians. We should, uh, even if we don't agree with the world's sexual ethic on, on, on their, their view of morality and sexuality, we should care about whether people are killing themselves or not. And we should help anybody, whether they're going to become a follower of Christ or not, find, uh, find peace and, and sanity and, and safety, right? And comfort and love. Our love should not be withheld from someone because they don't agree with us. That's wrong. We're going to look at that later in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, however, the world's way is to just tell them, tell the LGBTQ plus community that however you are is okay with God. And unless we say that message, they say that we're becoming hateful or intolerant and we're increasing the suicide rate. But from my research, I haven't researched real recently, but a few years ago, the suicide rate was going up the more tolerant the world is becoming. So when we lose our saltiness, when we lose our standard, we're there, we often will compromise our saltiness in the name of love, saying we're trying to help people. But what I'm trying to say is, if we lose our distinctiveness, we're not good for anything. And the very goals we're trying to achieve are actually undermined by us losing the distinctiveness of who we are. And so saltiness has to do with our inward preservation. We have to stay preserved. We have to preserve our saltiness as the church in order to be salt that preserves the earth and the world and the culture around us. We can't lose our distinctiveness or the world loses its way. Light. This is the next thing that Jesus says we are. Not only the salt of the earth, but we are the light of the world. This is awesome. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Call of Discipleship, he called the church the visible community. I love that. We are the visible community of God in the earth. What a high privilege. What a birthright. What an inheritance that when you become a believer in Jesus, you become a part of the visible community of how God shines his light into the world around us. You see, when you go over a, a city uh, or over a hill, sometimes you see this glow and then you get over a hillside and all of a sudden at night you see all these different lights. And that glow was not caused by one person with their porch light on. It was caused by hundreds or thousands of people with their porch lights on and the headlights on their cars and the lights being lit up in their buildings. Jesus says, you the church are not just the light of the world. You're a city on a hill and a city or a town on a hill. It's not just one light. It's a collection of lights. It's a whole community that shines. And of course that means that individually we shine our lights. But when we come together with our individual lights, collectively, we light the place up, baby. Come on. We, we, we're, we're to be an influence. We're to, we're, to be, we're to be noticeable for who we are as a people. And he says that we're to let our good deeds shine so much so that people see our good deeds and go, whoa, that place is amazing. They must have a good God. And they glorify the Father in heaven. John Tyson so beautifully says in his book, a Beautiful Resistance. I encourage you to read it while we're in this series. It's, it's not specifically just on the Sermon on the Mount, but so much of it is about the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, The Sermon on the Mount was a definitive charter for a new covenant community through which Jesus sought to sculpt a people who could show the world an entirely different vision of God. So powerful. 
The church is how Jesus reaches into the earth. He's the head. We're his body. We're his hands and his feet. When he wants to shine into the world, he doesn't just do it remotely from heaven. He does it through his people as witnesses, as influences, as a preserving agent of salt and as a penetrating power of light into darkness. It's not just about the individual you. It's not just like you singular are the light of the world. You collectively, you guys, you all, all y'all, right? We are, you all are the light of the world. When we all shine together, we make a huge difference in the middle of darkness. And the good news is, is the darker the dark, the crazier the chaos, the more the times seem glam, the brighter the light becomes. So we are in such an awesome, radical time right now. It's a difficult time. It's a trying time. But I thank God for COVID-19. Because when we're up against the ropes, our light becomes more distinctive. My dad was sharing with the first service that he was, as he was leaving the parking lot, uh, the other day after he taught, there was a young man that just came into the parking lot and starts waving at him. And everybody had left. And it was a Saturday afternoon. He wouldn't typically be here. And this young man used to come to our church years ago. And he signaled him and said, hey, you remember me? He said, of course I do. And he said, I have a cousin and it was an uncle that had just killed themselves. And he said, I just thought, what if I ran into Pastor Dan or Pastor John? But he just remembered that being at the church is a place where he had the light, where he had hope. And he knew that even though we probably weren't open at that time, he knew that this place represented light in the middle of darkness. And we're seeing that time and time again that people are coming to faith. Saw it at the pursuit last week. You saw it here. We saw it in the first service today. Somebody's like, I need Jesus. Because the times are causing people to become awakened. And we, we, need to be, we need to navigate this time as the light of the world. We need to shine brightly. We need to not shrink back or hold back or hide our light. When we shine, when we shine, our Father is glorified. I love this part when he tells us that we're the light of the world. He says, let your light shine before men that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Did you know that your Father is glorified when you shine? I call it like the Uncle Rico syndrome from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> you ever meet one of those people that's just like, you wish you could just go back? I mean, just think about it. And they're living in the glory days of high school. Like they're always telling the story about the big game. And like, they're like, you know, it's almost like they tell their kids things like, you know, you'll never be as good as your dad. And like, it's like this weird competition thing with our father. There's no competition. When you shine, he gets glory. That's my boy. That's my girl. Look at them doing their thing, praying, witnessing, loving, serving, being kind to somebody of a different political party, <laughs> serving somebody down the street. Oh, that's my kid. Look at them. They care. Oh, they're living this out. Look at them repenting today and saying they're sorry to somebody and building a broken bridge of relationship. That's my kid. Oh, come on now. Look at Sunrise Christian Center serving the police, being a bright light to these law enforcement and honoring people that serve our community. Those are my kids. But we get into a false humility, and God's not that impressed with our false humility. I'm not going to let anybody know that I'm doing this. Now, Jesus is going to tell us a little bit late in this very same Sermon on the Mount that we better be very careful that we don't do things to be seen of people. So he gives us kind of a very well-rounded picture, though, because sometimes we forget. We think about, oh, I'm not supposed to let anybody know I'm giving. I'm not supposed to let anybody know I'm praying or fasting. 
But we forget that right here, he tells us we are supposed to let our good deeds be seen by people so that they can glorify God. So what he's talking about is the motive of our heart. And you may have heard it said before, right? People are like, it's not me, it's all God. It's like, well, if God did a solo in front of the church, it'd probably be, like yours was really good, but it probably wasn't all God. Because his probably would have been perfect. (laughs) Like perfectly perfect. Like record-breaking, go down in history is the greatest song ever. So please don't say it's all God, right? Because he's saying your good deeds, your good deeds cause you to shine your light, his light, your light before men. And in this, your father is glorified and he's well-pleased in this. And if you try to live the Sermon on the Mount in your own strength or your own efforts, you're gonna fail miserably. But if you can see that there's all these glimpses, and this is the first glimpse of who the father is in the Sermon on the Mount, a father who's well pleased with his kids doing what he wants them to do and representing him well, it puts a smile on his heart. I can live by the pleasure of the father, by his grace, his blessing, his favor being released over my life. And now all of a sudden it's not a, oh, I better let my light shine. I'm the light. I better not screw this up. It's like, I get to be with my dad. I get to live with and for and from my dad who's pleased with me and who's with me in this whole thing. We can never do it apart from Jesus. We can never do it apart from our heavenly father. So don't hide your good works, but don't let your intention be your own glory. And then what are these good works that we're shining? Well, first of all, it's meeting needs. We've talked about this, right? Uh, meet, Meet needs, help people, help the poor, give, be generous, serve. Help somebody, lend, be generous, give a gift. Uh, These are really simple things, right? These types of good deeds that we can do. Be a listening ear. Show love and compassion to somebody. Be helpful to someone who's going through a hurting situation. Um, And then good works are also, uh, like letting our light shine also has to do with the church, embracing the reality that we are to influence every area of culture with the values of the kingdom of God. There are many dark things in our culture that are just waiting for the light of the church to show up. And the church has pieced out and abdicated her responsibility and is not engaged in very many areas of culture. And as my friend uh, Russell Johnson, who pastors at The Pursuit, said to the church last week before I preached, he said, you know, get out and vote. uh, And remember that Christianity is going to survive without America, but America will not survive without Christianity. And it's true of any nation or any world power. And it's absolutely true because wherever we abdicate our responsibility or our influence to be salt and light, corruption ensues. And the Christians have that separatist, pietistic mindset like, let's get out of here and start our own little bubble and the world can just go to hell. But what happens is, is then the world comes for our kids in education. The world comes for our kids and seduces them and recruits them. And we don't teach people how to be in the world and not of the world. We try to keep everybody separate and, and, and we've got to remain light and we've got to stay engaged. Abraham Kuyper, the theologian, he said, there is not one area in the whole of creation that God doesn't look over and say, it's mine. Everything that we have, technology, media, arts, entertainment, robotics, artificial, artificial intelligence, space exploration, chemistry, music, recording technology, film, Poetry, writing, books, all of these things came out of the stuff that God gave us in the Garden of Eden. We've not added, new things have not been added to the universe. And when the church realizes that we were given a cultural mandate to have dominion over the earth, we were to steward these things to cause them to be reflections of God's glory. 
So that means the church has to do good works by shining the light of Christ in education, in the universities, in, in, the, in the humanities, in art, in painting, in filmmaking, in storytelling, in media, in the news, in business, in commerce, in economics. All of these things come out of the stuff that God gave us. And we think to be fruitful and multiply is just like to have kids, but it's, it's part of the first part of discipleship. Is to, is to build family. And the church is a family of families. And our discipleship mandate is to disciple nations. It's for us to take our, even our careers as a, as a bricklayer, as a mason, as a plumber or an electrician, as a business person that works in marketing, as a, as a programmer, as a, an inventor, as a pastor, as a nurse, as a teacher, as a politician. We're to take every realm of culture that God gave us in this stuff called earth and influence with the light of Christ. And where the light doesn't shine, darkness gets to have its way. And a lot of Christians believe that the preeminent way to change the culture is to boycott stuff. It's not right. Now, somebody was a little hot around the collar in the first service, because there are times to boycott or say you're not going to watch something or participate in something, and I was trying to, clear to make, I tried to make that clear in the first service, and it doesn't mean we participate in every area of culture and every cultural activity, because it could be idolatrous or wicked, Right? But when we think that the best thing we can do is withdraw, Target creates a bathroom policy we don't like, we're not going to shop there. Netflix creates a show we don't like, we're out of Netflix. We're out of the media. We're out of the movies. And, I'm not, and I canceled Netflix like two years ago. I saw the direction their programming was going. I'm like, this is kind of sketch. So we're out. But now I need somebody's login because I want to watch The Social Dilemma. Okay, can, I, can somebody share their, I need to see that one, okay? Because it's, it's a good film, right? But why don't Christians think... Why don't I create content? Why don't I get involved in a company and try to change it? Why don't I make films? Not just little films that only Christians want to watch, but we don't, why don't we tell the best stories and create the best paintings and the best art and the best music? And, you know, in other, in other nations, they don't really have a Christian music industry. Now, I love worship music. That's pretty much all I listen to for the most part, 90% um, of it, you know? But, uh, but in other nations, they don't have Christian music industry, so the Christians just write music in the rest of the culture. And they've got to rival everything else, right? And so they see themselves as missionaries that are trying to win the hearts of people through music and through their poetic messages in the songs that they write. And so is abandoning everything in it? There was, I, I'd like to see more research on this, but I've heard it from reputable sources that uh, the the Hollywood was going to give the rating system of films to churches. And the church said, no, you guys are immoral. We don't want to have anything to do with that. What would happen if the church would have said, all right, because they, they, the world said the church is the conscience of the nation. But we're like, no, we're not interested in being involved with you. Thankfully, God's reversing that. There's a lot of Christians that are involved in Hollywood now and a lot of Christians involved in filmmaking. And God's raising up people that are looking to make a difference. It could be too little too late. I don't know. I don't prophesy that there's a civil war or that there's, um, you know, the end of our, our civilization as, Ameri as America as we know it. But it's very possible. World history tells us that's what happens time and time again. And even this man, Mr. Fred Market, that shared, this minister that shared, he said, um, I'm optimistic about revival and awakening, but I believe we have a short window to really make a difference. He said it would be the first time in world history that a superpower turned itself around and it would have to take a spiritual awakening to do so a spiritual awakening to do so, a Christ-centered spiritual awakening. And you might disagree with me on politics. I'm not going to build our church around one party, one platform, one politician. 
And you can disagree, but what we should agree on is that biblical values need to be lived out by the church, and that if the nation had biblical laws and practices, we would, we would have flourishing and blessing for honoring the ways of the Lord. And so even in the laws, again, our good work should penetrate government and penetrate the legal system. We need Christian lawyers and judges. We need Christians that, that help write laws and, and advocate and lobby in our capitals to help uh, bring things into order. And then bringing the light into the darkness, these good deeds are also supernatural. Because you know what? And this, is, this just goes to show us there are still demons today that need to be evicted from people's soul. There are still bodies that are so trapped in darkness that when they get the word cancer, all of our science, all of our technology is not sufficient to heal everybody through medical means. We need the supernatural light of Jesus to deliver, to heal, to transform, to renew. We need Jesus to show up through the church and do good works that are full of power that no government can rival, that no technology can rival. I'm telling you people, there is a place for the church that no government, that no nation, that no platform can occupy because there are spiritual issues that the only remedy is the spiritual power of the light and the name and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I came here to tell you today that we are the light of the world and we have a power that governments can't snuff out. They could burn our Bibles. They could topple the United States of America. They could vote out Donald Trump. They could vote in whoever they want. And I want to tell you that the church will be the light of the world even till our last breath. Our blood will cry out better things. Our blood will cry out and a new generation will arise that believes that the church is the light of the world. That we have power and authority in the name of Jesus. Your assignment, should you choose to walk in it, is that when you see darkness, you stay light. And you stay present. And you stay engaged. You pray and you obey and you be the difference that God has called us and made us to be. This is good news. And this is why we're living in a time. It's a good time because people are seeing our distinctiveness. But they've got to see something that rises above the cultural war. They've got to see something that rises above what the world can manufacture. They've got to see a Jesus people. They've got to see a people that are obsessed with the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And they're letting his light radiate through us to a broken and hurting world around us. This Jesus, he is the light of the world that was sent from God. Fully God, fully man, he lived a sinless life. And it was foretold by the prophets hundreds of times that this Jesus, he would die on the cross, he would be buried, and he would raise from the dead. And then he was seen by many, many witnesses, hundreds of witnesses that were uh, a witness of his resurrected body, where he would then ascend shortly thereafter to heaven till where he waits till death is overthrown and he returns the judge, the living and the dead. The Bible promises that every Everybody who believes in this Jesus, the light of the world, that they will receive forgiveness of sins if they repent and believe that he is Lord. Not just Lord of their life, but Lord of the whole world. This is the message that is worth giving your life to. And I want you to stand on your feet with me today as we close in prayer. And if you're here today and you say, I don't know if I've surrendered to Jesus, today you need to make that decision to surrender to his lordship 
You want to become a part of the greatest organization on the planet? We got lots of bumps, flaws, and wrinkles. The church, we're not perfect. But we're the bride of Jesus. We're the family of God in the earth. And you're invited to join us today by belief in Jesus. By turning from your sin and believing and calling on Jesus as Lord. But if you wait till the day he comes back to judge the living and the dead, it's too late to make a decision then. You've got to bow your knee now. You've got to bow your heart today. I don't even know if I have tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen November 3rd or November 5th or November 25th or any day beyond, but we have right now. And if you're not right with Jesus, I'm inviting you to call on him as Lord, that he could save you and forgive you and give you the gift of new life. Is there anybody here today that you'd raise your hand and say, that's me. I want to call on Jesus for the first time to be saved, to be, to be rescued, to be to just declare my allegiance to him. Is there anybody that you'd raise your hand up right now and say, that's me. I want to make that decision. I just want you to wave it so we can pray with you. There was one lady in the first service several last week that are saying yes to Jesus. This is the most important decision you could ever make in your life is to respond to who Jesus is and what he's done for you. There's others of you, you need to publicly declare your allegiance to Jesus in water baptism. In fact, you weren't really counted as a part of the church in the Bible unless you got baptized. Not that baptism saves us, the blood of Jesus saves us, faith in who he is and what he's done. But there is a change of allegiance from the kingdom of Satan to the power of God. And that happens where your conscience gets tuned right and true when you get submerged in the water. And you identify with what you believe, that you're dead and buried and you're raised with Christ. And next week we're doing a water baptism. And I know many people have signed up and we did a baptism teaching in our groups this week. But is there anybody, you've, you've not been water baptized yet, but you believe in Jesus, you need to get water baptized. I'm telling you, would you raise your hand so we can make sure to connect you? We want to just get you a little form just so we know how many to be prepared for. Is there anybody that you need to get water baptized? Just wave your hand up and say, that's me. I need to publicly declare my allegiance to Jesus and that I've transferred kingdoms. Anybody? You're all baptized, that's awesome. If you're not and you have questions, let us know. It's not something you should wait for or arrive at. I mean, you should have a basic understanding of what you're doing, but it won't take us long to discuss it with you or help you see why it's necessary as a follower of Jesus. And I just wanna pray, I'm gonna bring the prayer team up right now if you need prayer for anything. But I want to pray an anointing. One of the men brought it in the first service. But I just want to pray an anointing for you to be salt and light. Maybe there's areas of creativity or places you want to make a difference and you feel like you've been stuck or you've been afraid. And you just, maybe it's ideas. Maybe it's creative arts. Maybe it's film. Maybe it's government. Maybe it's business. Maybe it's your family, your neighborhood. Whatever it is, just put your hands up before the Lord. Lord, I just pray a blessing over your people. I'm not going to pray that they will be the light of the world or the salt of the earth, but as believers in Jesus, they are the light of the world. They are the salt of the earth. But I pray for a release of creativity and revelation, Lord God, that you'd break barriers that have tried to cause people to hide their light or be afraid or be uncertain, Lord God, and that you would use them to share your love and your power and your truth, your gospel with others, Lord, that light would penetrate the darkness, that this message of who Jesus is and what he's done would be on our lips, that your power would be on our lives and that you would make a difference through your people. Lord God, we thank you that you're not up for election, that you're not gonna, that, that, that your throne reigns over the thrones of the USA and every other human government. 
that you reign above all, that you are the supreme ruler and creator of all of the universe, Lord Jesus, and our yielding our allegiance is to you, and we pray that you would have your way in the affairs of man, in the affairs of the United States of America, that your rule and reign would be established, and that your purposes would be accomplished through your people, Lord God, that you would use us. I declare you are activated. You are prepared. You have the Spirit of God. Go forth in the boldness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Lord bless you today. If you need prayer for anything today, come forward and receive prayer. Go ahead and get your kids at this time from children's or youth ministry. And the Lord bless you. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Sunrise Message of the Week. Please help us get the word out. Share this on your Instagram stories. Thank you so much for participating in what God is doing here at Sunrise. Have a great week.